Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to Hope for Your Heart. Thank you so much for joining me today. This is part two for how do I respond to pressure and persecution. In the movie 42, Branch Richard, played by Harrison Ford, is a major league team executive with an amazing and a bold idea. Ricky recruits Jackie Robinson, an African-American baseball player playing in the Negro League to break the unspoken color line and become the first modern African-American major league player. As both anticipate, this becomes a major challenge for Robinson and his family as they endure unrelenting racism on and off the field from player and fan alike. As Jackie struggles against his nature to deal with the abuse, he finds an ally in Ricky, who is also a Christian. On their first meeting, Robinson asks Ricky, you want a player that doesn't have the guts to fight back? No, no, replies Ricky. I want a player who has the guts not to fight back. People aren't going to like this. They're going to do anything to get you to react. Follow a curse with a curse, and they'll hear only yours. Follow a blow with a blow, and they'll say the Negro lost his temper, that the Negro doesn't belong. Your enemy will be out in force, and you cannot meet him on his low ground. We win with hitting, running, fielding, only that. We win only if the world is convinced of two things, that you are a fine gentleman and a great ball player. Like our Savior, you've got to have the guts to turn the other cheek. Can you do it? Robinson replies, you've got me and your team. Give me the uniform. Give me a number on my back and I'll give you my guts. Unbelievable response, right? And when I think about the suffering that we go through, believers go through a source of suffering. And oftentimes we cannot respond in kind. Sometimes we have to turn the other cheek. So we're going to look at what the Bible says about responding when persecuted, responding under pressure. Our text comes from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 15. Peter says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now that first verse right there gives us a lot of insight as to the fact that we shouldn't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you. It's a, it's a test that has come upon us. Don't think it's strange when it is happening to you. Now, as you look at that first verse, maybe the question is why? Why should I as a Christian go through some strange ordeals, some strange suffering? Well, I want you to know the reason is because you have an arch enemy, Satan and his minions, right? You have switched teams. When you became a follower of Christ, before coming to Christ, you were on the enemy's team. And there was no conflict really there. You went through the natural things that everybody goes through. You went through natural suffering and, and the natural consequences of, of sin. But all of a sudden, you have switched teams. Now you're part of the Lord's team. I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir, right? And as a result of being part of the Lord's army, now you have become an enemy of Satan. So as a result, don't be surprised that a fiery ordeal has come upon you. 
The enemy wants to come against you because he knows you are secure in Christ. He can't get you to lose your salvation. He can't take it from you, but he can get you discouraged. And so he puts pressure on you so that you will think that being a follower of Christ is not worth it. Listen, don't buy into the enemy's lie. Greater is he that's in us than he that is in the world. So Peter says, rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. At a right time, God's glory will be revealed through you. But the time now is to participate in those sufferings. And then he says, verse number 14, If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer, thief, or any kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will then become of the ungodly sinner? So then, Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Well, you know that Peter is writing this during times when there's a lot of pressure on the church, but he's learned some valuable lessons in these times of pressure. He's learned that as I'm going through pressure, that I'm experiencing God's presence. He says that God is resting upon you. There's an extra measure of God's grace that you receive as you're going through times of pressure. I have a dear friend who is a missionary that we support, and he's serving in a country where Christianity is outlawed. And he was so fearful that uh, as he was serving this country, he says, well, what's going to happen if I get caught? Am I going to have the tenacity not to reject the name of Christ? And he discovered something. He was arrested for his faith. He spent some time in a jail cell, in a very deplorable cell, very bad conditions, But God gave him a supernatural ability not to reject the name of Christ. Why was he able to do that? How was he able to do that? Because God rests upon him. The Spirit of God was resting upon him. He experienced God's presence. When you're going through times of extreme pressure or as a follower of Christ, listen, God's presence is there with you. The second thing is that as we're going through pressure, we are tapping into God's plan. Peter says, if you suffer, it shouldn't be as a murderer, as a thief, or or any kind of other criminal, or even as, as a meddler. See, he's reminding us that when we suffer, we are identifying with Christ. We are going through what Christ went through. What a, a wonderful way to identify with Christ than by going through suffering as he suffered. And then thirdly, we learned yesterday in the broadcast that as we go through these pressures of time, we're also able to identify with the pain that Christ endured. Jesus made it very clear that if you follow him, he will make you fishers of men. But he also said that if you follow him, you will endure the same kind of suffering. He says, if they persecuted me, don't be surprised that they also persecute you. Verse number 16 Peter says, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you can bear that 
name. Don't you love that? You know, we think about connecting with others. I connect best with others when I can share in their joy and in their pain. Just last weekend, I had something that happens occasionally. I had to do a funeral and a wedding on the same weekend. I had actually a renewal of of, uh, marriage vows and a funeral all within a day of each other. Did one on Saturday, did the funeral on, on Sunday. I was able to connect in times of joy and in times of grief. I best connect with Jesus when I can share in his pain and his joy. This is the development of our maturity in Christ, experiencing being rejected because of righteousness' sake. You see, when we are able to identify on this level, we experience a whole new intimacy with Jesus Christ. So, as we look at times of suffering, look beyond yourself. Look to Christ. When you are truly suffering for Christ, then you will respond like Christ. Make no mistake about it. Our identity is in Christ. The pain reveals the sincerity of our faith, reveals the sincerity of our identity with Christ. If Christ is in you, when you are squeezed, Jesus comes out. Well, there's a fourth lesson that we must keep in mind when the pressure comes into our lives. It is being used to grow us toward perfection. Look at verse 17, 1 Peter 4, 17. Peter says, it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. You know, followers of Christ are sometimes disciplined to become more like Christ. We are put in a crucible of suffering to make us more like Christ. Paul wrote about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, this is why... Many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But then he says, if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. Sometimes God allows pressure to come into our lives to make us more like Jesus, putting us under that pressure. You know, for a believer, there's only so far that we can go. Paul reminds us that some are weak and sick and and a number have fallen asleep. You know, there are some believers who die prematurely because they refuse to grow on toward perfection. They were a believer in Christ. They were a child of the King, yet they wanted to do their own thing. You know, I have a cousin who I believe God took home prematurely. Uh, He was 18 years old and died in a really fluke accident. And I believe the reason the Lord took him home is because he refused to be conformed to the image of Christ. He wanted to do his own thing, and he wanted to live his own life, but he was a child of the king. You know, the Lord will only let you go so long. And and I know we don't like to talk about this. You probably won't hear anybody on the radio who is part of the health, wealth, prosperity, theology talking about this, but it's straight from God's word. There are many among you who are sick and and weak and a number who have, have fallen asleep, a number have died. Why? Because they refuse to judge themselves. They refuse to come under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. They were born again, but wanted to live for themselves. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself 
up for me. Oh, I want you to know that if you're feeling pressure, it might be that God is growing you toward perfection. Romans chapter 5 reminds us that we should glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulations, pressure does something for us. Paul says that it produces patience. How do I know that I have patience? Is God puts me in the crucible of suffering, and I endure that in patience. Paul says that that patience develops experience, and experience, hope. And hope makes us not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given to us. You see, when the pressure is coming to your life, maybe, just maybe, God is trying to teach you to be more like Christ, developing your perfection. He's burning off that dross in your life so that you can become more like Christ. Well, here's the fifth lesson that I hope that you will learn as you're going through times of pressure. When those pressure comes, we are experiencing God's passion toward those who don't know Christ. Look at verses 17 and 18. We're back to 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter says, And if that suffering begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, Peter is saying a mouthful here, so let's take it apart and see what he's saying. The point Peter is making is that we may suffer as followers of Christ. We should not be surprised by that, but we must remember the suffering that we are now experiencing is not nearly as bad as the suffering of those who reject Jesus will one day experience. Now, this crushes my heart. I don't want anybody to suffer for eternity, being in constant pain, without the ability to be relieved through Christ. Other great men have felt the same anguish. Here's what Paul said. Paul says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He said, I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul says, my heart is breaking. Now, he's writing this in times of Roman incarceration, Roman imprisonment, suffering for Christ. But he says, in the midst of my suffering, I have great sorrow and anguish in my heart. He says, I'm thinking about those who have been cut off from Christ, those who have rejected Christ. He's talking about his Jewish kinsmen, his Jewish brothers who don't know Christ. And he says, I wish I could be cut off for Christ for the sake of my brothers so that they would know Christ. He says, I've got sorrow in my heart. Moses also felt the same way. Way back in the book of Exodus, Moses says, now, if you'll forgive their sin, talking about the people that he is leading out through the wilderness, he said, if you'll forgive their sin, man, that'd be great. But if not, if it means blotting my name from the book that you have written, so be it. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Here God is reminding Moses, oh, that's great that you have this love for your people that you want to have your name removed from the land's book of life, but they're going to be blotted out because of their sin. You're not responsible for them, Moses. You see, I want to leave a faith on for the next generation. 
I've got kind of a lengthy article that I wanted to read to you. And I, I don't generally on the air read anything that's too lengthy because I figure I, I'll lose your attention if it gets too long. But there's an article in Christianity Today magazine entitled, Leaving the Faith of My Fathers. It's a testimony of Lisa Brockman and how she left the Mormon church to become a born-again Christian. She writes, As a sixth-generation Mormon girl, I believe that the Mormon church was the one true church of God. I believe Joseph Smith was a true prophet of God. By age six, I was convinced that having a temple marriage and faithfully obeying Mormon laws would qualify me to spend eternity in the highest heaven, the celestial kingdom. There, I would exalt into godhood and bear spirit children. This was my greatest dream. But there were temptations to resist. Throughout high school, Mormon friends of mine began drifting into the world of partying. Alcohol seemed to release them from the striving and the shame that comes with a performance-based love. For three years, I resisted, feeling like like a, a pressure cooker of unworthiness, waiting to explode. As a senior, I gave up all this resisting. I jumped into the party world with that same passion that I brought to the rest of my life, funneling beer without restraint. Yet even as I felt liberated from Mormon legalism, I didn't waver from believing that the Mormon church was God's true church. During my freshman year at the University of Utah, I met Gary. Gary told me he was a born-again Christian. I'd never heard of one. For the first month of our relationship, we kind of avoided that subject. Then on a wintry December day, Gary cracked open the door of this conversation. Gary asked, How do you know Mormonism is true? I had never heard this question before. He continued, Have you looked into the history of Mormonism? How do you know that Joseph Smith is a true prophet of God. How do you know that the Book of Mormon is God's Word? More questions that had never crossed my mind. Within minutes, my unease turned into terror. We had felt like a firm foundation was being dissolved and dissolving into quicksand. Nevertheless, our affection for each other was growing, and we knew this lingering division needed to be addressed, so we agreed to study the Bible together. It only took one Bible study to send me into a tailspin. I was shocked to find several crucial disparities between biblical and Mormon teachings. For five months, I battled with Gary and the Bible, defending Mormonism with passion, but my fortress began to crumble as I compared the historical authenticity of Mormonism and Joseph Smith with that of the Bible. This was devastating. It was infuriating at the same time. As I began to open my mind to a biblical view of my sinful nature, not a divine nature, it also opened my mind to better understand God's nature. Three persons in one God, the Father and the Spirit and the Son. You see, the Mormon God was a man who worked his way into Godhood. The biblical God has always been God, unchanging. I struggled to wrap my mind around this. 
I saw too that God was inviting me to walk into his kingdom through trust in Jesus Christ, covered in Christ's righteousness. I would always be worthy of the Father's delight and presence. But rejecting the faith of my forebears and risking the wrath of my family, it terrified me. I wanted further assurance that I was right to take this plunge. After more than five months of research, I was still wrestling with the idea of a Trinitarian God. One day, as I sat in bed conflicted, God drew near to me, and I saw a sea of people around Jesus who sat on a throne. They bowed before him, singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And as they worshiped, I fell to my face and I began to weep. I received Jesus into my heart and I walked into his kingdom. I was free from the shame that had suffocated me for 18 years. On my 21st birthday, after consuming large quantities of alcohol, I spent that night fending off drunk guys who wanted to take me home. I steadied a friend's forehead who vomited into the toilet in a urine-soaked bathroom, and I craved a different kind of life. That December night, that same December night, I returned home and fell face down before God. With my fists clenched and tears streaming, I offered each addiction to Him, inviting Him to have His way in my heart, my mind, and my body. I asked Him to free me to live fully surrendered to Jesus, the one who gives life. When I woke up the next morning, I felt different. I was born again, as if God had performed a total heart and mind transplant. I was released from my addictions, and peace filled my entire being. The Mormon girl inside me breathed a sigh of relief, set free from the burden of proving myself worthy. I rested in the arms of the one who had loved me enough to cover me with worthiness, all of his own. You know, as you look at this passage and this testimony of a woman whose life was radically changed, you discover that when your life has been changed by Christ, nothing else seems to matter around you. You experience God's passion toward others. You experience that passion of being set free. Well, I've got one final point I've got to give you in just a few remaining moments that we have. When we look at pressure, it teaches us to build our persistence on Christ. 1 Peter 4.19 So then, those who suffer according to God's will should submit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do good. Just two days before Christopher Columbus sighted land, his men were on the verge of mutiny. They had sailed the longest voyage they had ever sailed, and, and they were out of sight of land, and they wanted to turn back. The entry in Columbus's journal stated this, Here the people could stand it no longer, and complained of the long voyage. But the admiral chaired them and, and did the best that he could, holding out good hope of the advantages they would have. He added that it was useless to complain. He had come to the Indies and so had continued until they found them with the help of the Lord. Two days later, they discovered America. 
You see, you don't know what's around the next bend. Inventor Thomas Edison said, Our great, great weakness, our greatest weakness, lies in giving up. The most certain way to succeed is to always try just one more time. Romans 5 reminds us that we should glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulations gives patience and patience experience and experience hope and and hope doesn't make us ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Oh, my friends, count it all joy when you meet tribulations of various kinds, for you don't know that God is working and he's testing our faith and it's producing steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Well, thank you so much for joining me on this broadcast today. I so want to pray for you that you'll have the tenacity to keep on keeping on. If I can pray for you for a specific prayer request, would you shoot me a text at 252-267-2365. God bless you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please join me tomorrow for the broadcast that's going to close out the week, our Friday broadcast. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash 1890557, or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ, there is always hope for your heart.